Hey, good morning, church. My name is Joel, and welcome to Jamestown Harbor. We are so happy that you are here with us this morning. Uh, we just want to acknowledge right now that God is in the room with us. And so because God is here, we just want to invite you guys to stand with us. We're going to start by just acknowledging his presence through praise. And so let's stand and go ahead and sing to him.
braving the cold this morning, the snowy roads. They're a little better than they have been the past few days, but so happy to see so many faces here today. Come on in, find a seat if you haven't yet. My name is Laura Brown, and I'm a volunteer here at Jamestown Harbor. And like I said, we're happy to see you today. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for coming out and trying something new. We hope you're comfortable in this next hour or so of worship, and we're just happy that you're here. So please, meet somebody new today. We'd love to get to know you. As you came in today, you got a connection card. It says, hi, hello on it. If you fill that out and turn it into connection point in the lobby after the service, we've got a free gift for you. So we'll say thank you for coming and joining us. And we also just want to get to know you. So that's a great way to do that. Take that first step of just getting to know uh, people here in Jamestown Harbor. We'll get you signed up for those email notifications too and get you plugged in where we can. So uh, good news to have for you today. Uh, we do have a great service up ahead. And uh, we're also going to talk about a little bit about connection right now. So we've been building a community here in Jamestown Harbor. And like I said, we've got lots of new people joining. So we want to get you plugged in. We want to get you connected with everybody because God called us to be disciples, but that's really hard to do by yourself. It's really hard to do in just an hour on a Sunday morning too. So we invite you to consider joining maybe a group. You can find out more about the different groups that we have here at Jamestown Harbor, all online, harborchurches.org, or you can sign up for the Church Center app, and it's got all that information, calendar of events on there too. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, we want you to just continue to explore your spiritual journey. We're all in different stages of that, but we can all help each other out in discovering that next step. So if you do have questions about that, Make sure you talk to some of the staff members here. They would love to have that conversation with you and get you plugged in in the appropriate place to continue that spiritual journey. A couple announcements for you today. We have um, some of you that donated for the Christmas morning breakfast kits. So we partnered with Love Your Neighbor and put together these kits. Some people purchased some items for those, so thank you for doing that if you did. And after the service, right after, we're going to go out to the lobby and put those together as a church together. So we're going to not only assemble those groups, but we have some cards that we'd love for you to make. These are gonna go right to neighbors in your community. So thank you for loving your neighbor and thank you for uh, making their Christmas morning extra special for those that maybe wouldn't have had such a special morning. So we appreciate your help there. Coming up one week from today too, we have for high school students, our Friendsgiving. So if you don't know what this is, we all just come together, bring a lot of food together. We've got appetizers that we'd love for you to bring if you're a ninth through 12th grader, and we're just gonna eat and have some fun and maybe laugh and do some games and, and have a good time. So hope to see you there. Again, ninth to 12th graders are invited to that. That's at Fairhaven from six to eight o'clock next Sunday. And if you're here last week, you heard Ben Peters ask for meatballs. I'm gonna ask for cheese and crackers. I love cheese, anything cheesy. You can just bring all the cheese. So thank you in advance for signing up for that. Uh, today we're going to continue in just a few moments with our worship service. Our lead pastor, Scott Puntier, is going to continue our last week of the uh, Light at the End of the Tunnel series out of Matthew. So we'll be listening to that in just a few moments. But before we get there, we do want to go into our offering time. We do this uh, as a physical reminder of what God has asked us to do, which is be generous with our blessings. And we're going into a week where we have a lot of things to consider with our, with our blessings. It's a, a week of gratitude, a week of thanksgiving. So I ask that you spend some time this week and think about the blessings that you've been given in your life because I look into our community and I know we are a blessed community. So I ask you to think about that and think about how maybe you could share those blessings with others. Not necessarily asking for money, but you have time, you have resources, you have lots of blessings to be thankful for. And God would love for you to use those to love your neighbors as well. 
So something to consider this week and pray toward, but will you join me right now in prayer as we get into the service? God, thank you for bringing us together today. This is a special place, place of worship this morning, and we so thank you for bringing us together as a community to lean in, to hear your word, to do your work, and to listen to you and follow your guidance. You're leading us toward building the kingdom together. And we ask that you let us hear the message today, move forward with what you want us to do, and pull us in the right direction. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. You've given us so much. We thank you for the community you've allowed us to build here already. And we ask that you continue to do that work, to touch more people, to bring more people closer to you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Ushers, would you please come forward at this time? Yeah, as we continue this time of worship, uh, as we worship through giving, after that we are going to enter into a time of worship through song again. And I just want to invite us with the words of scripture into that space of worshiping him through song. Uh, and this invitation is just to praise him. It's very simple. Uh, it's a very, from a very well-known psalm, probably Psalm 150. You've probably heard it before. Uh, but it says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the string and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so the invitation this morning is simple. It's not complicated. It, it, it's simple. But to praise him with everything we have. And so would you, would you please just stand with us? Uh, as we begin to give him praise for everything that he, everything that he's given us, uh, everything that he is, uh, because he's so worthy of our praise.
are so good. You are so good to each and every one of us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. For the ways you never give up on us are in constant pursuit of our hearts. Help us align our hearts with you, with your word, and this unending love. Help us tune into what you have for us this morning and allow our hearts to be consumed with your thoughts. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Unless you're a fourth or fifth grader, then you can follow Sydney right out the back. Uh, and to our kids' ministry out there, your leaders are out there waiting. Uh, we are in our final week of a sermon series that we've called Light at the End of the Tunnel. And we, we've called it this because this is a section of the Gospel of Matthew that we've been studying these last few chapters where Jesus seems to talk a lot about things like the end of the world, things like heaven and hell. And so uh, I've really wanted to take advantage of this time and, and try to challenge us to think differently about these aspects that are so like hard to hold on to. Uh, I, have been using this great book by Joshua Ryan Butler called the skeletons in God's closet. But today I want to talk a little bit about this book, uh, homo Deus. Uh, this is written in 2015 by Yuval Noah Harari. And, uh, I read it last year on vacation. It's, it's not a religious book at all. It's a, a very humanist perspective on essentially the future of humanity. Kind of a fun vacation read, right? Uh, and, and so in this book, he takes a look at the entirety of human history uh, and he concludes that up until about right now, this season in human history, uh, the central work of humanity, the number one thing on our job description has been to conquer three things, disease, war, and famine. Right? Those are the three things that he brings up over and over again. And he argues that throughout history, nothing else is quite the existential threat to the human race as disease or war or, or, uh, or famine. Uh, and, and he says like those things had the potential to wipe out humanity from the planet. And, and uh, today he argues that we've actually conquered these things. Not that they have gone away. We still have all three of those things in the world. But he says they no longer have the power to wipe humanity off the planet. Uh, and so then he asks this really intriguing question. So if the number one thing on our job description has been accomplished, now what? Now what are we going to do with our time, with our energy, with our effort, with our unique genius? What will be the central task of humanity going forward? And his argument is, now that we've conquered disease, war, and famine, we will now attempt to conquer death. I know crazy idea, right? But the way he puts it, it's actually not that crazy of an idea. Uh, here, here's what he says. He says, humans always die to, due to some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping blood. The main artery is clogged by fatty deposits. Cancerous cells spread to the liver. Germs multiply in the lungs. And he argues that these are all technical problems that can be solved with enough resources and enough attention and focus. And if humanity puts this problem at the top of their list, we could solve the problem. Uh, in fact, some experts that he quotes believe that humans will overcome death by the year uh, 2200. Uh, some say 2100 will do that. I even found a couple of scientists who say that anyone possessing a really healthy body and an extremely healthy bank account 
will by 2050 have a serious shot at immortality decade by decade. You go into the shop and get a part upgraded, right? That's the idea. Uh, and he goes on and he, and he just has this kind of conversation about how will this impact our lives? What if instead of living to about 80 years old, you live to 160? Imagine a person getting married at the age of 20 and your spouse still has 140 more years to go. What would the nature of that relationship be like on your 100th wedding anniversary, Right? Or uh, imagine you raise your kids to teenagers. You send them out of the house, say, around the age 20. And a and hundred years later, you no longer remember their childhood. What would the nature of that relationship be like? Or you have a boss that you don't like? Well, she's not going to retire for 95 more years, right? What will the nature of that relationship be like? Now, I, I definitely don't uh, agree with a lot of his perspective in this book, but I think it's a really interesting question. What is the central task of humanity and is the central task of us as humans to avoid death? That's kind of the question he's proposing here. And honestly, maybe that is the reason we talk about things like heaven and earth and hell and what's to come in the future is we're still looking for ways to avoid death. And in this series, we've talked a lot about the nature of sin. We've talked a lot about heaven and earth. We've talked a lot about hell, but we haven't talked a lot about death. What's the point of death? What happens when I die? Do I avoid it? Do I embrace it? Uh, All of those questions and more are wrapped up in this conversation about death. And we don't tend to talk about it a lot. Jesus actually brings it up, but we don't. So we want to close our series today on a real high note right? And we want to talk about death. I'd like to start in Luke chapter 16 today. We've been going through Matthew and and we're up to Matthew 26. And I'll get to that uh, later on in the service. We'll We'll loop back to it. But I want to start here because Jesus tells an interesting story about death that I think helps us gain some perspective. Uh, And this is how Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Gross. So right right off the bat in this story, we have two characters. We have the rich man, right? The rich man has expensive clothes. Purple and linen in particular were these societal marks of luxury. These were luxurious clothes. It marked his affluence. Uh, Possibly it also marked his leadership in the community. Purple was a status symbol associated with royalty. Linen actually was a mark of the clothing that the priests would wear in the temple. So maybe this guy was a political leader or even a religious leader. He was, uh, had some kind of positional authority in the community. Now, when we read this story, perhaps you've heard this story before, but as we read on, you're going to read this story through the lens of the rich guy is the bad guy, right? That's how Jesus tells the story. The rich guy is the bad guy. Lazarus is the good guy. But to Jesus's audience, that was probably not how they heard the story. When we read these first three verses, 
oh, there's a rich man and, there's a La- and then there's a beggar named Lazarus, they would have thought, oh, the rich man's the respected leader in the community. He's the good guy, right? So as Jesus begins, he's the good guy. But this is a story about those kinds of people, people with influence, likely aimed at religious leaders. So that's the rich man. And then we have Lazarus. Lazarus was a person who was hurting. Lazarus was dealing with disease. The Bible tells us he has sores all over him. Uh, Lazarus is a person who's dealing with disability. He was laid at the gate at the, at the feet of other people, right? He was a person who was alone. He had no community. He survived on the mercy of others. And so, again, while the people who are hearing this story will likely start with thinking the rich man is the good guy in the story, I can't help but notice that Lazarus already is the more important character. And the reason I know this is because he's the only one of the two characters who actually has a name, right? It's rich man and it's Lazarus. Lazarus has a name. He has an identity. His poverty doesn't define him. His disability doesn't define him. He has an identity outside of those things. He has a name. He's known. In particular, as Jesus is telling the story, he's known by God. On the other hand, the rich man, our supposed hero of the story, has no name. He's lost to history. No one remembers this person. He has no story. Why is that? I think it's in part because his only identity must have been in his wealth. His identity was in his power, in his influence. This was a person who defined his life based on those things that he accumulated around himself. He might have had followers or fans. He might have continued to like hold positions of power in the community and and might have succeeded in the community. But that was all he had. That was his entire identity according to this story. He lost his true self along the way, and the wrong thing has come to define him. And so Jesus is telling a story about two people, but he's also telling a story about how people find their identity. So that's three verses into the story. Let's pick up again in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, in this story, Abraham is sort of a stand-in for the presence of God or God the Father, right? And so the, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. All right, so there's a, word, a new word here to us. If you've been tracking with this conversation over the past few weeks, there's a new word in this story. Last week, we talked about the word that we tend to translate as hell uh, in the New Testament, and it's the word that Jesus uses most often, the word Gehenna. And we talked a lot about Gehenna last week. If you want to learn more, you can listen to that, that, that message. But we talked about this as a, 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 what a place that is referred to outside of the city, right? It's, hell is not this concept of an underground torture chamber, but it is this concept, the nature of hell, as we talked about with Gehenna, is a place outside of God's holy city, this disconnection, uh, a valley of isolation from God himself, 
But in this story, Jesus doesn't use Gehenna. In fact, it's, it's not even translated as hell. He uses the word Hades. In Jesus' day, Hades was a Greek translation of another word that we also translate as hell. In the Hebrew, is the word Sheol. And today, we, we translate all three of these words in the Bible as hell. So, you know, interesting that there's a lot going on behind the English words of our Bible, right? Uh, while we use Sheol or Hades to mean hell, what it actually means is the grave, right? So in this story, when Jesus refers to the beggar and the blind man uh, in Hades, what he's talking about is they're in the grave, right? And the way Hebrews understand the grave is different than how we think of hell. The grave was somewhere that everyone went to. Good or bad, didn't matter if you were rich or poor, righteous or sinner, everyone dies. And when they die, they're put in a grave. The grave, Sheol. And so now we start to get this like, when we talk about the story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell, where do we get the idea that hell might be underground? It comes from here. Because where are graves? In the ground. Right? But also, the Hebrews never really thought about the grave or Sheol as a place of punishment. It was a place of unconscious death, not of conscious punishment. And so it was neither a place of conscious torment uh, or a release to a better place, a good place. It was just simply a place of death. And that is how Old Testament people tended to think about death. Death was not this entrance to uh, perhaps a punishment for all the bad things you did. Death was the consequence of sin in their minds. Rather than walking through the garden forever in this close, intimate relationship with God, our lives come to an end and we are buried in the grave, forever separated from God and and, and his creation by death. So, If that's what is going on when Jesus says Hades, right? He also says this word torment, right? He says while they were in Hades, he was in torment and he looked up and he saw Abraham. Torment, interesting word. Because if we're simply talking about a place of unconscious death, where's, what's up with the torment here, right? Well, here's an interesting thing to note. Torture and torment are not the same thing, right? I may be tormented by uh, dark thoughts that hurt me on the inside, but I could be tortured by you pulling out every one of my individual hairs, right? Both hurt me, but torture is something that is done to us, while torment is something that I do to myself, something that arises internally, from inside. So the rich man is in the grave and he is in torment. Not torture, he's in torment. Why? Well, because in the grave, the rich man's no longer rich. I think it's easy to, to kind of miss this part of the story, but it's easy to understand you can't take it with you, right? And somebody never told the rich man this because now he is separated from his wealth and he's no longer the rich man. His central identity is gone. The thing that he wrapped his whole self around has been taken away. And the agony of that loss is what's tormenting him. 
Let that sit in you for a moment as you consider what defines me? What is it that defines your identity? If you were to ask 10 friends or family, people you know, to to describe who you are, what would they say? Would you like what they say? There are common things that we use to kind of define ourselves. It could be our work. could be our family. Sometimes we're defined as a person who always does it the right way. Maybe we're defined as a person who is always a reliable friend. Maybe you're defined as someone who's always happy. Maybe you're defined as someone whose body looks like fill in the blank. There are a lot of things that we can use to define our identity. And the question that I think the story Jesus tells about death is raising for us is what happens when that which you use to define yourself is gone? What happens when you're separated from the thing that you've wrapped your identity around? What happens when you define yourself as a mother and your children go to college? How does that feel? What does that feel like? What happens when you've defined yourself by always being correct or committed to excellence or doing it the right way and then you make a mistake? What happens to your identity then? What happens when you're defined by your physical abilities and then a sickness or an injury just takes some of that away? Torment and torture are different things. And I believe that losing what defines us most is the torment that this man is experiencing in death. So now let's, uh, let's keep reading over in verse 24. So in Hades, he looked up, he saw Abraham by Lazarus' side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from, from there to us. So interestingly, notice the rich man is not asking to go to heaven in this, in this analogy, is he? He wants Lazarus to come here. That's terrible right? He doesn't take this opportunity to embrace a new identity and say, oh, I had it all wrong this whole time. I want to embrace a new identity. Can I join you guys? He doesn't say that at all. He says, I want Lazarus to come down here and serve me. I want Lazarus to come down here and make my life a little bit easier. I want to drag him into this torment with me. He's not repentant at all. He's not releasing a hold of his previous identity. But here's what I love about this story. Because Abraham is this representation of God, the father in this story. And in the midst of this wayward, unrepentant, kind of mean rich man and all the torment that he's putting on to himself, Abraham calls him son. Abraham doesn't call him a fool. He doesn't call him lazy He doesn't call him misguided or worthless. 
God refuses to call him by anything other than the identity that God himself gave him. You see, hell is not this kind of place where we're reaching for God and he cannot be grasped. I love the way that Joshua Ryan Butler says, he he says it this way, it is that God is reaching for us and we are clutching to our idols that consume us, clinging to our our self-chosen identities and refusing to let go of our sin. God still knows who the rich man truly is. God still knows that he is a beloved creation of the creator. That he is a loved son of the God of the universe. And yet, the rich man won't see it. And then finally, the story ends with like a little bargaining. Uh, Verse 27, uh, he answered, this is the rich man. He says, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So in the middle of this man's self-made torment, he refuses to take ownership of his identity. What he does is he asks God for more information, right? Man, if I just would have known, if you just would have told me, God, then I could have made a choice that's different. Uh, I don't want this to happen. Go tell my brothers. But information isn't the problem. They don't need more information. Uh, He says they have it. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen. They have the information. So then he asks God for a miracle. He says, a display of power, like rising someone from the dead, like Lazarus and sending them to him, that'll change their minds. But again, Abraham says, if they haven't responded, they won't just be, no matter what we do. And so the problem isn't God's fault. The problem isn't that God hasn't done enough. The problem is that in the midst of all that God has done, we still refuse to accept the identity he gives us. We still function with the problem of self-centered love, even though we have the opportunity to love God and love others. Pastor Tim Keller, uh, I love this quote that he, he has about this. He says, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. What happens when we die? I don't know. I can't know for sure. But death has this opportunity, this way of bringing our identity into focus. Death gives us this opportunity to choose our identity and live into that choice. As Keller writes, into infinity. I also know that it is into the grave that Jesus Christ has already gone. And he rose out of it. I know that Jesus, the resurrected king, has overcome the grave and given us the opportunity to continue to choose our new identity. I know that Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. And I know that Jesus himself has given us the invitation to join him in that new creation. 
And so we have the opportunity, the invitation right now to die to ourselves and receive a new identity. His gates are wide open. His, his, he refuses to, uh, to refuse his embrace is to remain like the rich man in our own pit of self-identity and self-reliance. So when we think about death, death seems to be this thing that can bring our lives into focus. It drives us to shape our identity based not on how we want to be self-reliant, but based on God's incredible love for us. Death can define what our lives look like today, right now. I think Jesus knew this because Jesus is constantly talking to his friends about how he's going to die. He says it to them at least four times before we get to Matthew 26, uh, where he says this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. He never stops talking about it with his friends. Over and over, he brings this topic up. And every single time he does it, the disciples either argue with Jesus or they change the subject. They avoid it. They're like, no, we don't, we don't want to talk about it. We want to ignore it. They cannot even see it. They have done everything they can to say, them to, say to themselves, we can stop this. We can fix this. It's not going to happen. Not to you, Jesus. In fact, this is the only way they've ever responded to this announcement that he's dying, with denial. As if there was some way yet that they could overcome death. So Matthew, Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus brings up the conversation again and they don't seem to get it again. And then Matthew follows up with a short story of someone who does. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Remember I told you like five times, I'm gonna die. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. What would you do if your best friend said that to you? They choose to ignore it, to argue about it. But this woman who I have to imagine just overheard this conversation. And she did something different than the disciples, right? She gives her attention to Christ in this moment, pouring this perfume on him as if preparing a body for burial. She doesn't avoid this idea of death. She leans into it. She allows this new revelation of this death to allow her to see Jesus in a completely new way that she hadn't before. I don't know why she sees it and they don't. Maybe for her, 
death was never something to be avoided. Maybe she grew up and death was around her. I don't know. The disciples try to argue Jesus' death. She lets it in. And because she does that, she sees Jesus in a moment that perhaps was pretty painful for him. And because she can see this moment of pain for him, she is present with him in the moment. The truth of the, of the idea of death, the separation from our earthly life, I believe it helps us embrace the now in a way that God would love. And maybe that's what we can learn from this woman. Could it be that death actually puts life in a new perspective? Could it, could it be that looking at death, not avoiding it, helps us to understand what matters most? And that facing death allows us to be present at the important moments of our lives right now. It shapes our identity. It shapes who we are. So while Harari may argue that humanity's number one job in the coming future will be to conquer death and avoid death, Jesus tends to teach us that death is not to be avoided but it is an opportunity for all things to come into focus. To understand Christ for who he really is and to understand ourselves and our identity for who we really are. It is death that makes our lives matter. It doesn't make death less emotional for us. It doesn't make death less painful for us. Death is an important moment in the scope of humanity's life. Just like the rich man, we mourn when we lose the things that are important to us, the friends, the family, the parents. It's never easy, but it's always an invitation to be present. Uh, A few years ago, we lost someone from our congregation, David Christian. And um, I remember, uh, Tracy, as you often tell me about your husband's passing, uh, as he was in the hospital bed and Tracy was anxious, obviously, about this impending loss, David turned to her and said, don't worry, God's got me. And that's the story Tracy tells. God's got me, is what he said. This was a man who in that moment embraced his true identity. I'm his. God's got me. And that moment of impending death did that for him. Perhaps in a way nothing else ever had in his life. I know who I am. I know who God is. God's got me. So as we end today, we've we've talked a lot about what's the job of humanity. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your to-do list then. Let's talk about how the reality of death can bring our lives into focus and prioritize who we are today. When I uh, first started in ministry a long time, I had a, a, a day planner. It was paper, right? We like wrote uh, appointments and to-do lists on, a, on paper in a folder. You, you guys remember these at all? Um, we didn't have a notes app. Didn't even have a cell phone. Uh, but I had this paper calendar system and maybe some of you had this. It was designed by a guy named Stephen Covey. Anybody have like a Stephen Covey planner? Ken, I know you did. Of course you did, right? Uh, Covey was famous for writing a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, He basically makes the case that by looking at people who are most effective in their life, uh, most fulfilled in this world, they all tend to exhibit seven habits in their lives ways that they live. And I'm not going to spoil all seven for you, but um, 
he did, I do, do want to tell you about number two. Because habit number two was begin with the end in mind. When you're planning your life, when you're planning your to-do list, start with where you want to go. And, and, and he basically uh, invites the reader to picture their own funeral and to wonder, what do I want people to say about me at that funeral? What do they say about what kind of person I am, what kind of mother or father or friend or coworker? I mean, it's a little awkward in the book and a little morbid, but his point was that if we know who we want to be at the end, we can orient our lives today to aim us in that direction. We can make choices that will lead us to that destination. So if I want my kids at my funeral to say, I was there for them when, when they needed me. It helps me focus on how do I shape, how many nights a week do I work? that I'm available when they're home. It helps me shape how I prioritize their activities, their events, how I spend my time when we are home together, all those sorts of things. If I want my friends to say that I loved others well, it informs how quickly I respond to a text message or to a phone call or when they ask for help. This habit of considering the reality of death is intended to give us permission to go all in on those things that are most important to us now. Death makes life matter. Death drives us to our truest identity, which means we have the opportunity to live today with the future in mind. So I think I'm gonna give you two ways in which you can help think about this. And the first one uh, is to give your attention to the margins. Give your attention to the margins. It's not lost on me how different the two characters in Jesus' story are. One who had everything and one who lived on the margins. Recognize that when we give our attention to the margins, we start to understand how upside down God's kingdom really is. If those with power and status and control are forever doomed to a, to a hell of their own making and internal torment, how much more should I look to the margins of society to find Christ? To look at the marginalized, to hear the voices crying out in a symphony of pain and exclusion. We have the most to learn about who we are by looking at those who are the most broken. Not those who seem to have it all figured out. When we look to the margins, we start to recognize that none of us have it figured out. Some of us pretend we do. But when we look into the brokenness humanity, we see the grace of God and his love for us and the identity of who we really are. So give your attention to the margins in your own life and in the world around you. And second, embrace your true self. You are not what you do. You are not what you control. You are not what you desire. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the creator. You are infinitely valuable, not because of what you do or have done, but just because of who you are. Knowing that this is true, even after the grave, allows us to live into our true identity today. Listen, working for the same boss for a hundred years may feel like a living hell to some of us, right? 
Walking this earth for 200 or 300 years might feel like a hell on earth to some of us. But in truth, it is a life disconnected from our identity in Christ that torments us the most. Four weeks ago, uh, when Abby Osting opened this series for us, she talked about how we engage with an uncertain future. And when our future is uncertain, especially when faced with the idea of death, it is very likely for us to be distracted from what really matters, to lose ourselves in a preoccupation with the afterlife or to misplace our identity in things that can be taken away from us. But Jesus instead invites us to pay attention, to allow something like death to shape us who we are today, right now, to allow our lives right here and now to be driven by our true identity, to live today with the end in mind. So the central task of humanity is never to overcome death, but instead to allow death to focus on who we really are and who God really is. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful uh, today that you have a way of focusing us. And God, There are lots of ways in which you do that and death is a significant one. God, we all walk in this room today with uh, different feelings and understandings and beliefs about death. Some of us, God, avoid it altogether. Some of us are overly fixated on it. But God, we know that it hurts when the things that we wrap ourselves up in are taken away from us. God, help us to wrap ourselves up in your love for us. Help us to find our identity in you. Help us to give our attention to the margins where we truly see you at work in the brokenness of of our world. God, help us to embrace our true identity. Remind us that you got us, no matter what we've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to enter into a time of response right now uh, by just allowing God uh, to have our identity, by putting, by putting who we are um, in him. And so would you please stand with us as we begin to sing?
I hope that's a prayer that you can pray today. You can have it all. I think sometimes we, we hear that and we might think about our stuff. But do we allow God to have all of us, our identity, who we are? Jesus wasn't uh, afraid to confront death and to talk about death. And because we have our identity in him, we don't need to be either. Instead, we can sing that song. We can pray that prayer. We can offer everything, all of who we are, even our identity to him right now today. So as you leave, may you go in the love of God the Father, the grace of his son, Jesus Christ, and the presence of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Before you go, take a moment to be present in the, in the now and introduce yourself to someone who's worshiping around you. Uh, every week we have new people here and it might be an opportunity for you to meet one. So introduce yourself before you go.